Welcome to the Nature Recovery Podcast. We're going to take a closer look at some of the solutions to counter biodiversity decline. And we'll find out more about the people behind these ideas. So I'm very glad that my guest this week is Professor Joseph Bull, who is an Associate Professor in Climate Change Biology at the University of Oxford. Could you tell us a bit about yourself and the work that you do at the University of Oxford? Sure. So I'm an Associate Professor in Climate Change Biology, as you say, and really my focus is on biodiversity impacts of human activities um, and how those are influenced in the context of environmental change, so including climate change, obviously. Um, so at the end of the day, really, I'm, I'm interested in the impacts of what we do, how we live our lives, and the things that we've produced and consume as part of living our lives, um, the impacts of those things on biodiversity and how to mitigate those impacts, how to reduce and reverse those impacts. Um, to do so, I work a lot with large organisations um, at the root of global supply chains. So, for example, extractive sector organisations, um, transport and other infrastructure organisations, you know, consumer products organisations, to try and look and understand how they um, directly and through their supply chains um, uh, reduce biodiversity and, and how that can be reversed. Okay, great. Well, that's um, fascinating and sounds extremely important. Um, and obviously our focus at the centre is, is about nature recovery. And one of the things we're finding is when we talk to people, depending on the background that they come from, it can mean a lot of different things uh, to the individual. So, you know, when you hear the phrase nature recovery, what, what does that mean to you? So I always think about it in relation to the idea of nature positive, which is what I talked about as part of the Leadership Centre seminar series recently. And nature positive is really a way of saying, um, having quantified our impacts on biodiversity, um, can you know, as an economy or as an organisation or as an individual, um, <clears throat> can we mitigate those impacts and then reverse them through proactive conservation actions and considering all of those things together against a current baseline or you know, how much nature we have in the world now, can we end up somehow with more nature, with greater amount of biodiversity than we did previously? Um, and that's what Nature Positive is about. It's about saying, can we start to halt the decline of biodiversity loss globally, reverse it, and get to the stage where biodiversity is increasing against a load of different metrics? And for me, if we're able to do that, then that's what I would see as nature recovery. Okay, that's uh, fascinating to hear. Um, one, one question I also have about, you know, just the phrase nature recovery, and it's interesting how you relate it to nature positivity, but it seems a very sort of human-centric approach to, uh, to nature. You know, um, I'm well aware that nature is going to be fine and has existed before humanity and after humanity, but the phrase nature recovery implies that, that nature is the one that's at, at fault, where actually, um, you know, really it's, the, it's human actions that, that need to, to change. Um, have you encountered any difficulties with those sort of terms, nature recovery, nature positive, that um, that you know that, that sort of turn the focus more onto uh, nature's at fault rather than actually looking at the human actions and the human supply chains. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I think you've got to look at the reason we conserve nature or try and achieve nature recovery, right? And you know, one set of reasons we might try and achieve nature recovery is because, or the prevention of species extinctions or whatever it might be, is because we feel there's some kind of you know, moral obligation or, or moral duty to do so. But I think at the end of the day, a lot of the reasons we talk about preventing biodiversity loss, about achieving nature recovery, is is because of people, right? It, it is necessarily a human-centered approach. And then it's about the relationship between humans and the world we live in, and how can we make sure that we continue to have um, an environment that's stable and provides the kind of 
underpinning services that human society needs to exist. Um, at the end of the day, nature conservation involves a lot of value judgments about what we see as important biodiversity and what we see as the right kind of biodiversity, if you like. So once you get beyond any kind of moral arguments for conserving species, of which I think there are some, and I think that's important, at the end of the day, the whole kind of enterprise of nature conservation, I think, has to be tied to, to people and, and the environment that people live in, because that's really why a, a lot of the reason for doing what we do. So yeah, I think it's an interesting challenge to say, is nature recovery too much of an anthropogenic focused argument? But I think at the end of the day, um, it's possible to have both a non-human related motivation for conserving nature, as well as saying, well, actually, we're doing it partly to benefit people. Yeah, that's very interesting. Give me some uh, food for thought there. And um, certainly your talk that you gave, uh, one thing I loved about it is it is it made me more positive about some of the schemes that are in place for things like biodiversity net gain, of which, you know, there are, there are always kind of problems. But um, I sort of detected a, a note of optimism uh, behind everything that you were kind of saying. Mm. Um, and do you think it's fair to say that you, you know, you're, you have an optimistic outlook towards uh, nature positivity, nature recovery? Um, and given that, you know, before working in this field, you know, if you look at all the graphs and all the data, uh, things are undoubtedly bad and by most arguments getting worse. So in kind of how... How do you manage to, if you know, first of all, are you optimistic? And then secondly, if you are, uh, how, how do you manage to kind of keep that optimism within your work and within your outlook, mm. given everything that's, that's happening? Yeah, so first of all, yes, I am optimistic. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm very optimistic. But I'm optimistic and I like to see proof that things are going to work, right? So I'm not, I'm not hopelessly optimistic. Um, I'm not kind of, um, I don't want to be unrealistic, right? And so when I look at the kind of things that we look at, the kind of problems we look at, so nature positive is a challenge. Can organizations, can economies be nature positive? I think there's, of course they can, of course it's possible, um, based on what the analyses that we can do, but also it's gonna be hard. And there's you know, certain things that we have to do to get to there that are gonna be quite challenging. So yes, I'm optimistic, even though I know there's plenty of challenges to um, turning around the, the ongoing biodiversity climbs, declines that we see. Um, I think, I wouldn't say it's completely accurate to say that, you know, everything suggests things are getting worse. I think even though biodiversity globally continues to be in decline, I think we see the, you know, the, the seeds <laughs> germinating of some degree of, of um, positive outcomes from the impacts of all the conservation work we do. And I think certainly if you look at analyses which consider the counterfactual, you know, what would have happened to global species and habitat loss if we hadn't had any conservation efforts, then you see actually they, that some of those losses have been slowed down. Some of those losses have been, in some cases, halted. Um, there are species that wouldn't be around today if it wasn't for conservation efforts, right? So I think for a start, you can say that in some ways, we've certainly started to slow the, the rate of biodiversity loss. Whether we're going quickly enough is another thing, but we certainly started to slow it. There have been other analyses, that um, papers that look at global human footprints and economic developments and, you know, the extent to which that's tied inexorably to biodiversity loss and have shown some decoupling to some extent, you know, started to show that it's possible to have economic development ongoing without that being directly correlated with biodiversity loss. So that's a good thing. That's an encouraging thing. And then on a more project by project basis, on an anecdotal basis, you see certain projects which have relatively positive outcomes, again, showing that it's possible, right? So, 
Um, an example I'd point to recently is um, a big paper published about the bit, one of the big mines in Madagascar, which was trying to seek no net loss of forest cover. So no net loss of forest cover, meaning it um, had some forest clearance as part of the mining project, but that was accompanied by measures to halt deforestation elsewhere across Madagascar. And some of the most robust statistical analyses I've seen of those kind of projects in this Nature paper that was published last year show that they think it's on track to be successful. So they're managing to, to, to achieve this no net loss of deforestation alongside a big mining project. And you know, big mining projects are necessary if we, if we want renewable energy technologies, if we want batteries, if we want computers, right? So, you know, this kind of thing is, uh, to me, part of the ongoing transition towards a more sustainable economy. Um, and projects like that anecdotally show that this, it's potentially this kind of thing can work. I gave an example in my talk as well um, of work we looked at with US wetlands. And again, the example is from one of our papers from, from you know, just a couple of years ago. In that case, we didn't do a proper causation analysis. Um, so we weren't actually showing that the policy and legislation put in place to prevent wetland losses was actually um, directly responsible for slowing the rate of wetland losses, but it certainly correlates with it. So you see that there's this kind of effort to achieve wetland, to save wetlands across America, and that, that the rate of wetland loss has substantially slowed down since that law was put in place. So again, I am optimistic. I know there's a lot of things that are gonna be very challenging if we want to get towards a world where we're mitigating climate change, where we're meeting the Paris Agreement, where we're slowing down the loss of biodiversity, and where we're seeing eventually some form of nature recovery. Like those things are very hard to do, but they're, not, they're definitely not impossible. And I definitely see the first shoots of some recovery um, in some of the, the literature. That's great to hear. It's, re it's really refreshing. It's really warming. Um... And also just having those kind of concrete examples out there that again it's not it's not perfect but it's it's very easy i think sort of um on the outside and listening to different types of media just to sort of hear the repeated message of doom um and there is a lot of yeah. doom out there but but actually yeah. you know things are happening and i think you know um when i hear people like you talk you know we have the knowledge we have the tools we have the techniques the implementation is often very hard involving yeah. you know diverse political and governance uh, mechanisms that are um, way, way above my uh, capacity to, to deal with. But the fact that people like you and your colleagues are, are sort of engaging with them is, is really heartening. Um, can you talk just a bit more about actually, you know, some of the projects that you're currently working on? I know they might not be directly uh, nature recovery, you know, you're in climate change biology, but, but what's the, what are the projects that you're currently finding fascinating um, for you personally and for the, for the team of researchers that you work with? Yeah, so we're working on a couple of projects. Um, I guess I'll start with a couple of the ones that are more the nature positive, nature recovery types, type things. So we have done a series of projects with the University of Oxford. That's some of the work that was published last year in Nature. Um, and that looks at the universities as a large organization. You know, what are the biodiversity impacts? How can we mitigate those? And how can we contribute towards a nature positive world, a world in which nature is recovering? Um, so it's really exciting to continue that work and see that lead, help lead to the establishment of a nature positives, nature positive universities alliance. So about 500 universities around the world all banding together to work on nature positive um, solutions for nature recovery. We're working with a couple of different organisations, um, particularly, for example, in agriculture. You know, looking at agricultural supply chains and trying to understand how to quantify the biodiversity impacts of those and how to again achieve biodiversity gains through different agricultural practices within those supply chains. We're looking at um, 
one thing that's quite interesting at the moment is looking at a range of broadcast organizations, media and broadcast, who are trying to understand their impacts, um, their negative impacts on biodiversity. Again, a lot of that is through the supply chains, but also actually downstream. So the impacts of their products and how people consume them, whether that's newspapers or streaming or something like that. Um, and interestingly, that can have both positive and negative impacts because obviously some of these organizations do a huge amount of work to raise awareness of the natural world and biodiversity conservation and the importance of it. So a range of different organizations we're working with on those kind of projects around impacts and how to move eventually towards nature recovery or supporting nature recovery. Um, I could also say one of the big projects, we're, or two of the big projects we're working on at the moment, um, which are a bit more kind of applied conservation, if you like. Um, one is all around the Aral Sea region in Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, particularly Uzbekistan, which is one of the, you know, talking about cause for optimism. <laughs> the Aral Sea is one of the, uh, the biggest localised environmental disasters of the last 50 years. It's the, the loss of a, an entire sea and the collapse of the relevant ecosystems and impacts on human health. So we're working with a set of different organisations there to try and push um, for protection of remaining wildlife, to push for um, development of initiatives around ecotourism and initiatives around reducing the impacts of, of industrial activity in that region. So combining, you know, how do you achieve nature recovery in the most challenging possible case study situations with um, benefits for people and working with industry and government. So that's another example, which I think is quite a nice practical example of nature recovery and the challenges that are involved. And then finally, I would just point to a project we have across Europe, which is all about forest restoration and how do we achieve forest restoration projects in a way that not only sequesters carbon, but also supports biodiversity conservation and nature recovery across Europe through forests. Um, but interestingly, how you a big part of the work we're doing now is how you actually fund that. You know, how do you pay for that? And what, what are the financial mechanisms that allow you to sustainably not only reforest in the first place and restore forests, but also then to maintain those forests there on the landscape um, into the future? So quite a series of different projects that ultimately are all based around, practically speaking, how do we, how do we move towards nature recovery in different scenarios? It sounds great. I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, of forest maintenance. I was doing some tree planting on the weekend and I'm always aware that Tree planting is the easy bit that everyone turns out for, uh, but really what we need is tree management, tree maintenance, tree, you know, you know uh, planting the trees yeah. isn't really great for carbon, not awesome for biodiversity, but keeping them alive for 10 to 30 years is yeah. really what, uh, what can make a difference. Um, I'm just actually, you know, personally interested in Uzbekistan, when, when you go to the Aral Sea and you, and you see a place yeah. where there's been, you know, complete uh, nature collapse, uh, do you see signs of adaptation? I mean, what, what happens in there when you have such a sort of ecosystem collapse? You know, are there, uh, does flora and fauna start to adapt? Or, do, I mean, obviously mm. you have mass loss of biodiversity and I, I guess of abundance as well. Yeah. Um, but does nature kind of find a way to sustain itself? How, what, what kind of things do you see there? Yeah, I, mean, I think to some extent nature moves on, doesn't it? I mean, the Aral Sea is a challenging example because you've got an entire landscape scale system that has collapsed because the sea has disappeared. Um, so it's, it's a lot harder to imagine nature recovery in the sense of going back to what was there before. Now, it's not impossible for the Aral Sea to return, but it seems like it would be really quite challenging. Mm. Um, not, you know, practically and physically as well as, um, as well as politically and socially and so forth and economically. So, so it's a very challenging example. But what you see in that case is uh, the creation of a new desert. So now mm. they've got a new desert, which is starting to develop its own specific kind of system um, because a lot of the kind of the native plants that spread from nearby areas that never were under the water or not recently um, are starting to kind of 
spread and, and, and disperse into that newly created desert, which is essentially a blank canvas for a whole new ecos desert ecosystem to emerge. So you're seeing a lot of um, plants and wildlife kind of starting to colonize that former seabed and create what's a new system called the, the Aral Desert. Um, now, what's interesting partly is that it's a bit of a refuge for a number of species, um, partly because it's so inaccessible and hard to get to, and partly because it was off limits for a long time, big parts of the former Aral Seabed. Um, it's now no longer the case, which is partly why we're working on this project to protect it. But as a result, it's essentially been a refuge for some time for wildlife. So there's lots of wildlife species, animal species, bird species, other taxa that are of conservation interest that have used that area as a bit of a stronghold um, to stay safe from you know, poaching and other challenges. Um, so you do see you know, that nature kind of adapting, basically, and finding a way to kind of um, well, I mean, nature just works with what it's given, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I find it. I find it fascinating. It's like the you know the Chernobyl example of you know even within mass destruction and sort of loss mm. of life, and actually they're all mm. kind of winners in a way. And it's again, yeah. it's that hard thing to kind of quantify. I mean, yeah. it's a disaster, but it's good for some species, and there's some good in there. And kind of how do you balance that out? And it, like you say, it's kind of it's moving on. And I think there's always that tension between conservation and trying to protect what we have and these sort of in the UK maybe like some rare chalk streams or you know and accepting that some areas are going to get warmer and actually maybe there's an argument for bringing in non-native species because they're going to flourish and and you know things will kind of colonize but uh, mm -hmm. um, yeah I find that tension in interesting and um, certainly the work you've done in Uzbekistan sounds absolutely fascinating. Well I think what I would say is it's um, it's interesting and it's um, in some ways, there's some positive stories to tell there. In the case of Uzbekistan and the Aral Sea, you know, it is a very thin silver lining to a very dark cloud, right? <laughs> yeah. In, in terms of the, uh, the species benefits that have been yeah. gained versus the collapse of relevant ecosystems. But I'm really, you know, you talk about optimism or the need for optimism or not. I mean, for me, it's a case of saying in that case, let's not pretend a lot of very, you know, problematic things haven't happened here from, a, from an environmental point of view, from a human point of view, human health point of view, I mean. Um, from an ecosystem point of view, that there's, there's a lot of chat, very you know terrible things that have happened to that ecosystem. Um, but the answer to that isn't to throw our hands up in despair and say, well, it's all over. The answer is to say, well, what can we do about it? You know, how do we move forward from here? Mm -hmm. Because there is a way back to that same ecosystem. Can we restore that ecosystem? Or do we have to embrace a novel ecosystem, given what we've got? And what are the benefits? Um, who are the, winners and, are the winners and losers in that novel ecosystem? And how do we you know, work together to, to facilitate that? facilitate that in a way that's good for nature and supports nature recovery to something uh, but also is you know consistent with people who live there and what you know what they want what they expect and what benefits them so that's for me the way forward is to say let's not let's not despair let's, yeah let's work with what we've got it's a, it's a great perspective there's no you know there's no barren landscape even you know when glaciers retreat and there's just bare rock you know within a few years lichens and you know like colonization seems to be happening all the time even if you know there is a loss of um gray abundance and you know these disasters it's kind of like yeah sort of looking looking at the bigger picture just want to end i think with um maybe some personal reflections on um i guess kind of what nature means to you like what are the natural environments that you feel most at home in other than the uk or when you kind of travel mm -hmm. you know what what's what's your favorite place in nature to sort of hang out in yeah it's a good question that i to be honest, I, you know, I grew up in the UK. We moved around a lot. We lived abroad a little bit, but mainly I grew up in the UK. Um, and since, you know, as much of my adult life has been in the UK, 
And so there'll always be a, a place, I think, in my heart for kind of coastal British environments. You know, I've always loved being on the coast. Um, and I think particularly swimming <laughs> in, in the sea where there's kind of interesting natural habitats, you know, whether that's kind of underwater kind of kelp forests off the southwest or, you know, kind of um, the chalk cliffs near where I grew up and so forth. You know, mm -hmm. it's the thing is the UK, we don't have many kind of unmodified natural habitats, clearly. But I always, there'll always be a special place for me for kind of coastal environments. And I've enjoyed, you know, when I've traveled, going to coastal environments too. Now, the Aral Sea, <laughs> whether you'd call that a coastal environment or not, I don't know. Um, but, um, but obviously, that's where I've done a lot of my work for the last, you know, more than 10 years now. I think <clears throat> something else that I've always enjoyed is, is actually kind of, even though I've done, been involved in projects that involve forests, you know, proper dense kind of forests, whether that's in the tropics or the European forest project I've talked about, and I do obviously love forests, um, whether that's you know, in the UK or elsewhere. I kind of always feel a bit like deserts are quite hard done by. I think, uh, you know, the, the way we talk about deserts, not as biologists, but the way that we perceive deserts um, and the way people talk about conservation and which habitats are priorities. And I think deserts are often talked about in a kind of a, you know... We have to halt them, right? They're bad things. Well, keep, yeah, them up, prevent... keep them at bay and, well, and plan yeah. around, you know, sort of stop them from, from being there or kind of we want to regreen the desert or get rid of them, you know. Yeah, there's... exactly. And, it, you know, there are some instances in which that's kind of appropriate to talk about preventing desertification. But I think when you've got naturally occurring deserts or drylands or kind of extensive shrublands, you know, you kind of... They're often seen as kind of low biodiversity and not priorities, but I think actually that's not really fair. Um, and so I've enjoyed working in desert and dryland systems, which is partly why I've enjoyed working in Central Asia and Uzbekistan so much. Um, and I would really love to kind of contribute towards the, the broader effort to not talk about places, you know, as deserts in a negative sense. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you see an absence of life, to say, oh, it's a desert, because that's not fair on deserts. Deserts are actually really interesting ecosystems. So, so yeah. So that there's a. For, so for me, I think when I think about nature. I like to support, you know, deserts and desert conservation and dryland conservation. But I think if we're getting down to personally, you know, what I've always, what I've grown up with, I think I'll always have, a, you know, a place for coastal ecosystems and, and immediate offshore systems. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Um, as ever, um, Professor Joseph, um, I am, I finished talking to you and I feel uplifted, uh, optimistic and really glad that you and your researchers and your team um, are out there dealing with these uh, complex issues. I'm going to take a closer look at Uzbekistan and I think I'm going to take a look at some deserts and reflect on them a bit more. But thank you so much for your time today and um, good luck with all your future research. Thanks, Stephen. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. You've been listening to the Nature Recovery Podcast with me, Stephen Thomas. Please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can, please consider leaving us a review as it will really help other people to find us. Also, why not consider sharing this episode with someone you know? You never know, you might get them interested in the wonderful field of nature recovery. If you want to find out more about the activities of the Leverhulme Centre for Nature Recovery, you can find us on Twitter at Nature Recovery, or you can visit our website for more information. That's www.naturerecovery.ox.ac.uk. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>